It's no secret that I am a big fan of Kevin Smith films. Throughout college, I would rant about my love for things like Dogma and Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, Mall Rats, and of course, Clerks, the film that put him on the map. Kevin Smith came up through the 1990s mumblecore, I believe is the slang term for movies like that, where it's just a camera filming two people talking and their dialogue, no matter how lengthy it may be in a scene. As long as there's compelling dialogue in it, you're intrigued by it. Now, Kevin Smith movies also are known to have a little bit of raunchy humor in it, but they also have a heart to it. Now, I should also stop and pump the brakes on this intro by saying Kevin Smith is not on the show today. It's the second time I've had to say that in an intro. The first time was, I think, earlier this summer when we had a Kevin Smith sampler episode drop, which ended up being a real big hit that led to today's episode. Because when I posted about the episode on Instagram, uh, a certain someone left a comment for me. Scott Schiaffo left a comment on the posting about that episode. And I thought to myself, holy shit, it's the Chulies gum guy from the original Clerks film. And if you don't know who the Chulies gum guy is, obviously you don't know Kevin Smith lore and Kevin Smith movies that well, and that's okay, you know. There's always people out there that are kind of outsiders looking in at what I'm talking about, but I knew who the Chulies gum guy was. And just in case for any of you people that don't know, here's a little soundbite from his scene in Clerks. Thanks. Have a good one. Do you mind if I drink this here? Sure. Yeah. You open? Yeah. Pack a cigarette. Are you sure? Am I sure? Are you sure? Am I sure about what? Do you really want to buy those cigarettes? Are you serious? How long have you been smoking? What is this, a pull? How long have you been a smoker? I don't know, since I was about 13. 13. I'd say you're about 19, 20. Am I right? What in the hell is that? That's your lung. By this time, your lung looks like this. You've got to be shitting me. You think I'm shitting you? Here. What's this? It's a trach ring. It's what they install in your throat when throat cancer takes your voice box. This one came out of a 60-year-old man. Oh, God. He smoked until the day he died. He used to put the cigarette in this thing and smoke it that way. Excuse me, but could you... This is where you're heading. Cruddy lung, smoking through a hole in your throat. Do you really want that? Well, if it's already too late, I guess we'll just... It's never too late. Put the cigarettes back and try some gum instead. Here, Chulies gum. Try this. It's not the same. It's cheaper than cigarettes, and it certainly beats this. Oh, Jesus. It's a picture of a cancer-ridden lung. Keep it. I'll just take the gum. 55. You made a very wise choice. Keep up the good work. If you're going to drink that coffee... I think you ought to take it outside, hmm? No, I think I'll drink it in here, thanks. Well, if you're going to drink it in here, uh, I'd appreciate it if you don't bother the customers. Okay. I'm sorry about that. Pack of cigarettes? What's that? This? How long have you been smoking? Scott's couple scenes that we see in Clerks really set the tone for the movie. Like we all know, Clerks went on to become a landmark and independent film in the 1990s and propel a director like Kevin Smith to the top of Hollywood fame of great contemporary directors, at least in my opinion. But I must say, as for Scott's sake, it's really cool to find out that he is coming back in Clerks 3 that right now is making the rounds on some special screenings 
and I definitely look forward to catching the film when I can, wherever I can. But let me just dive in here and say it's no secret that the original Clerks had such an impact on me early on trying to make films out of college and whatnot. Uh, so to have a cast member of the original Clerks on the show today was a real treat. And we don't talk too much about Clerks till t- kind of the tail end of the show. Uh, we do what we usually do on this show. Uh, we talk about where artists come from, where actors come from, musicians, directors, uh, producers, writers, anybody. We, we, where do they come from, what inspires them, and the journey to how they got to where they are right now. And Scott has indeed a very interesting story. So, I feel like I say it every week, and, you know, every week is a real treat when I have a guest on the show. But to have someone who was in a film that inspired me so much creatively on the show today is indeed a real treat. Welcome to The Basement. Scott, it is awesome to have you on the basement here today. Welcome. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, so I, I do want to talk about how you how you and I actually landed here right now on this podcast. Um, for any of the listeners at home, uh, about a couple months ago, we did a Kevin Smith sampler. Uh, me and uh, Aaron Yara from uh, Phaser Media. Uh, we just came on and we talked about like our top three Kevin Smith films. And, you know, obviously like how we usually do every week, there's an Instagram post and all of a sudden Scott out of nowhere, you know, the Chulies gum guy from clerks leaves a comment on the Instagram page. And I go, Holy shit. He was in clerks. (laughs) (laughs) Do you like follow the hashtag or something? Or like, how do you do? Yeah, I do. I do. I actually do. And, uh, I have a lot of flexible time to, I don't keep up with social media as much as I had been lately. This is a busy year, but I keep up with it. And now when I see folks, you know, when I see love for Kevin's uh, career, I, I'm all over that and happy to, to, to pipe in and say hello. And, you know, it's, um, I think the social media thing is awesome for all of us. We can all get connected because without the folks that support what we do, we have nothing. No. Completely. I agree. I'll, I'll take my seven or eight likes I get <laughs> on a, on a yeah, post or whatnot. Yeah, I hear you, man. Um, uh, so off the bat here, we'll, we'll obviously, you know, talk about clerks. You know, I, I know it's something you like to do and whatnot, and it's cool that you still like to rift on it every now and then. Um, I'll get to that in a little bit, but I'm um, forgive me if I'm a little out of order, but I, uh, I was, I was uh, just doing some research, crafting what I wanted to talk about, and I noticed this on another interview you did, and you mentioned, I think you were doing the Audible voiceover for a book you did, and look, I haven't read the book, I haven't got the book, but let me just say my birthday is in a few days as I record this, and I don't know, I, I the title of it, uh, Vicious Dogs Attack Me in the Sleepless Nights of Summer, that's a, first of all, that's a pretty badass title man (laughs) yeah yeah it seems like i mean i'll give you the floor in just a sec but it seems like um it's a bunch of short stories and like you know compilations of i don't know truth or not but i i'm intrigued i might uh 
might throw you a purchase soon, I just may say. Um, what's the book about, basically? Well, the book um, is a collection of short stories and poems written quite a while ago, back in the late 80s to early 90s, late 80s to mid 90s, like a 10 year period, but more late 80s, early 90s, right around the time I was cast in Clerks. Um, I had a really vicious alcohol problem and drug addiction, and I ran pretty wild with it for a long time. And I would, the one thing I was managed to continue to do when I was in a very bad state was write. It was almost, the book is almost, the book is almost like a, a journal of that lifestyle, really. It's um, one interesting thing is what's been nice since it's come out is a lot of people find recovery in there and it's not a recovery book at all. Uh, the book doesn't glorify the lifestyle but it also doesn't make excuses for it. It just kind of is. It's like a junkie journal. And it's with me riffing and having a sort of like a poetic license to tell my stories. And it's funny you say you don't know if it's truth. The one thing about the book I can say is it is, you know, it's all based in truth. Uh, there's no real fiction in there. Those were all drinking episodes or drug-related episodes or musings I had a lot of the times under the influence. Um, like, for instance, there's one called, uh, oh, my gosh, I, I'm going to forget my own titles of my poem. Well, The Vicious Dogs Attack Me in Sleepless Nights of Summer is the title of the book. It is the title of one of the poems. And that came out of reality. I would have this repetitive nightmare back then of, and I love animals more so now than ever, but I would have this horrible nightmare, very vivid, toxic nightmare of dogs viciously attacking me. And I'd have to literally rip their jaws off my body in the dream. And I would have that dream a couple times a month there for a long stretch of time, which is pretty obvious. You know, you get to somebody that's deeply, you know, in some trouble. I, you know, that was obviously my own addictions and demons attacking me, I think. But uh, that's where the title came. That's where that poem came from. Um, but yeah, I really appreciate you checking it out and bringing it up. That's really super cool. Yes, the Audible is uh, recently, well, it's not recent now, but it's about a year or two now since COVID. COVID shut us down and I finally did record the Audible because the book's about, about 10 years now. It's actually out on Amazon, uh, but the Audible's new. And uh, I'll definitely get you a link. I have uh, download comp links to the audio, which I'll be more than happy to share with you. And uh, the book's on Amazon and the book's on my website, um, personalized for the animal charity that I work with. I saw that. That's that's really cool. I actually, I, I mean, a lot of people shop on Amazon right now, but if given the chance to cut out the middleman and go straight to the source, I'd probably just buy from you you know um, appreciate it and that good chunk of the money when it comes through me does go to the animals awesome that no that that's really cool man um yeah I'll, I'll definitely you will hear from me and yeah send me those send me those links too i'll, I'll oh. love to look into that um so let's backpedal a little bit almost all the way to the beginning or whatnot um are you born and raised in new jersey 
Indeed, born in Passaic, along with uh, Paul Rudd, was born in Passaic, and Loretta Swit, and a number of people, uh, Michael Pollard. Uh, yeah, no northern New Jersey my whole life, and I love the tri-state area. I love New York. I love New Jersey. Uh, I thought at one point I might migrate out west, which most actors will do, but most of my work stayed on the East Coast in the indie world, so... It never happened. And I, you know, I'm pretty well rooted here, too. I, I've got uh, I got my base of people here. So I, I never went out west. But Jersey guy, definitely, man. Yeah, I uh, I'm from the northeast. So I'm from New England. But um, uh, I came within a I don't want to say I'm making it sound as close as it not as close as it really was. But I, I used to work for NBC and there was an offer on the table to go work up in Inglewood cliffs. Oh, <laughs> I couldn't give up my house to go get a two bedroom apartment in New Jersey. New Jersey. Yeah. So, sure. um, but I, I love New York too. It's, um, I don't know. I just, I'm not a New Yorker, but like, I feel like I missed that part of my life, at least just doing like a year in New York. Um, sure. Greatest city in the world. You can walk for forever in that there's a story on every block is what I like. To That's say. right. That's right. As a, as a independent actor, kind of in that part of the country, like what's, I mean, like, I know like you got New York right there and obviously Kevin Smith making movies in that area also, but like what kind of coming up through the ranks, like what was the independent film scene like in that era um, in Jersey? Well, it was, Super exciting because it was also pretty, still a fairly new thing, um, a real grassroots thing. We're talking late 80s, early 90s, and there was no Internet. There was no, you know, home computing was in its infancy, uh, no smartphones. And it was literally you'd get the trade papers and uh, get acting auditions through trade papers. And uh, there were a lot of guys on the East Coast, Hal Hartley. Jim Jarmusch. Oh, yeah. Of course, love those guys. Spike Lee. Um, now I'm forgetting the guy that did Henry Fool. That's Hal Hartley. Uh, but there were a ton of guys that I really looked up to. I worked with Nick Zed, who was really wacky. Uh, it's a shame. He passed away last year. But um, he was a, a really interesting character on the New York scene. And, and you know, we had the New York, the East Coast punk music was a big thing in my past, too, as as far as coming up, uh, I loved all that stuff. And a lot of it was right here on the East Coast, you know. Going back to the very, very beginning, like this is, I got to stop saying this this way on the show, but it, it really is kind of a common question. Like what was kind of the light bulb moment for you as an actor? Like, I don't know how far back it really goes for you. Was it, was it childhood or was it you took a drama class in high school? Like when did you kind of think, oh, I, I kind of like this? You know, it's very long ago, and I, I felt like I wanted to do it from the time I was really young. But music, music is, was, and probably will always be the number one passion. Yeah. Uh, I've been playing since I'm quite young, from the age 12 to my mid to late 20s. Guitar was literally my best friend. And, um, but I always... I loved film so much. I was so moved by movies and I can't tell you why, 
I was, because let me tell you, I had a lot of people, I don't want to say a lot, but there were a good amount of people that were sort of naysayers, like my high school drama coach kind of told me to think about something else. And he made me the stage manager after I auditioned and my best friend got the role, but it didn't deter me at all because I really believed with the right type of roles that I'd be able to do it. And I wanted it really badly. And um, what's really kind of ironic about it is as crazy as this sounds, acting, character acting was almost ended up being a plan B, which is nuts because by the time I was in my late twenties, I really drank and drugged my way out of like the music scene. I was in some bands. I was in one in particular that I was really close with the guys and the lead singer. And we wrote a bunch of material together and we were getting out there and it was starting to go well. And we had CBS Sony records, a little interested in us, but they could not rely on me. And by my late twenties, they had to, they had to, you know, say goodbye. And it was awful. But what I did was I sobered up for a while and I thought, you know, rather than get back in a band where if you let everybody down, you're letting down four or five other guys. I felt with acting, if I could stay sober long enough to go to the audition and get the gig and a handful of days shooting, I could make it work. And, you know, this is, that was how my mind was thinking. And quickly into that process, I got a number of things. I had gotten a play and I had gotten, I saw the clerk's audition and then I got the call back from Kevin's crew. And, you know, within a year when the film came out and it was getting so much attention, I was obviously going to stick with the character acting and continue with music. But now I had a whole new thing open up and which was just like a huge gift. And a lot of it was just strange twists of fate. Yeah. Um, I know we were talking about this before I hit record, but you, you know, you do mention, you know, having your issues and battles with addiction. I just, I wanted to maybe say this on the air. I heard you on your YouTube channel, you announced 16 years of sobriety. And I just wanted to publicly congratulate you on that. Well, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's astounding to me because I truly believed I'd be the kind of guy that was going to really go down in flames. I could not get it together. At one point I sort of had given in to the fact that I would probably die drinking and I was welcoming it. And that's how dark it got by my, by the end of my twenties into my thirties and family and close friends at one point there were all just waiting for that phone call. Yeah. And uh, it's hard for me to, I, it's hard for me to take a lot of personal credit or any personal credit for the sobriety because there was a bunch of things that happened uh, that pulled me out of a lot of things. I had a congestive heart failure in 2006 that was really profound. And I mean, I almost died like twice within three months. And I was in and out of hospitals and the heart wing for the, for the following next, from like 2006 to 2010, I was like an almost full-time heart patient. I'd go in, I'd have procedures, they'd try new meds. 
I go home, back in the hospital. I have an ICD, which that was crazy. I was getting shocked uh, the first year or two. Uh, like every couple of weeks, I'd get a shock because, you know, you have a onboard defibrillator. And when your heart goes into a wacky rhythm, you get the paddles. Like I've got that on board, you know, like Iron Man. <laughs> so, but the, 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 uh, the takeaway on that was while I was like this full-time heart patient for those few years, there was just no drinking. I had tried at one point and it was insane, but I, there was just no drinking and I was sort of satiated by the sedatives and the pain meds they were giving me for the heart problem because it was a profound problem. And when your heart's, when your heart's beating in your chest, like Buddy Rich or Neil Pert, I can't stay calm. So I would get the sedatives. And even with that, and when your heart's just kind of like, it's like a squirrel is loose in your chest. And it was the scariest, craziest thing. And then you don't know when you're going to get shocked. So the drinking was just off the table. And a few years into that, like when the fog lifted, you know, I had said to my partner, who's another really important person in my life, Carrie, my life, my soulmate, uh, without her, I, I can't imagine I'd be sober and still be here either. But it was amazing. I said, you know, not only have I not had a drink in three years, but I'm not longing for it. I don't miss it. In the early days when I would get sober, go to rehab, I went to a million rehabs and AA and 90 meetings in 90 days and 12 step programs. I mean, I did that for what felt like forever and nothing would stick because I was really the poster guy for the, um, uh, dry drunk. I was miserable. I'd walk my dog and stare at the liquor store for a half hour, watch people come in and out and be furious with the people that, that, that were, you know, like you can drink and I can't drink. I mean, that's how sick it was. It was, I hated my life without it. My life with it was a mess. And when you're in that place, a lot of alcoholics and addicts can attest to this. You're going to choose the bottle because you're miserable as hell without it. If there's no quality sobriety, that's really not going to probably last. And uh, so after the few years as a heart patient, the miracle, which is why it's hard for me to take the credit at this point, because I'm not doing heavy lifting as far as not drinking. I've been blessed to not feel compelled to want it ever it's it's a mind blower to me. I pray that that never changes because it was miserable being so miserable without it. So, you know, my heart breaks for the people that are still in that place where they know they've got to stop, but they want it more than anything. And it's a horrible place to be in. I, I really was at the end of my rope with it. Um, so, you know, thank you for the for the congrats. And 16 years is amazing not to have the obsession. They tell you that if you stay sober long enough, you'll lose the obsession. But, you know, that's that's different for everybody. I I really never believed I'd ever be one of those people that wouldn't be struggling with it, like in a really serious way. But yeah, no. Um, well, congratulations on that. And here's to 16 more and then some let's leave it at that. Yeah. Awesome. Um, 
Well, to kind of jump back on um, what I had kind of going on here or what we were going, what we were talking about. Um, I, I want to go back to one thing we like to talk about on the show is inspirations and like, you know, especially with actors. And I guess this is kind of this, I was going to ask this question later in terms of being a musician, but I guess we can kind of lump it all together as one. I mean, like, who did you look at acting wise? Like, Oh, I want, that makes, that makes me want to do this now. Or like, even as a musician, who were your, you know, you picked up a guitar at a young age, like what, what artist made you pick up a guitar? So well, I'll, we'll go with the music first because it is first. You know, it was that my earliest memories are musical memories. Uh, and I'm old as salt now. So, like, I <laughs> I came up, I was a child in the 60s. I was in my teens in the 70s. And it was all about the British invasion. I, I remember being maybe six years old and seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan uh doing hello goodbye in the sergeant pepper outfits that's such and, a i'm sorry to interject but like that is so okay. there's so many musicians that say that and like that was just especially like american musicians that watch that watch them on the show like that was it that was that moment like oh that being a rock star hell yeah absolutely the beatles if you came up just like you say if you were you know a kid in the 60s and you had any inclination for music, the Beatles were just like that. Wow. You know, like they made it all. They wrote the songs, they played the songs, they were funny, they had the chemistry. And then, you know, I just loved, loved music. And I had an older cousin who was like a big brother father figure to me because I was raised by a single mom. I didn't have a good relationship with my father till well into my adulthood. So my older cousin, Jerry, who sadly is not with us anymore, but he was a big inspiration and he would come home with all the newest records, you know, in the late sixties, Beatles, Stones, um, the band, Sly and the Family Stone, Otis Redding, Sergeant Pepper, you know, uh, I just, I came up with all of that and I loved music so much. It just made me, it made me feel like not only did I want to do it, but that somehow, if you were fortunate enough to make that music or make some music, that that's just a magical thing. And I still believe that music is music to me is as close to magic uh, in this realm that you can get. Uh, when you think about bands that go overseas and there's the language barrier. I was just going to say that. Like that's literally because yeah. I, I more recently I've, become friends with a few guys from central uh, from Venezuela and they're diehard like Metallica fans. Yeah. And like, they, um, they, like they would just start playing all these like bands from America or just, or the UK or whatnot, whether it's from the 60s, 70s and 80s. And they look at me like, and their face would light up and I'm um, like, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's Metallica. Hell yeah. And like, one of the things we bonded over was just, I, I'd say to them, like, I think it's amazing how a band from America would, would tour in a foreign country and you have millions of people, not millions, but thousands, hundreds of thousands, whatever. Sure. Singing the lyrics to an English song and they can't speak a word of English. It's beautiful. It's, it is. It's really amazing. And that just is a total testament to the power of music, the power of all music. You know, I, 
I might have been a bit of an elitist when I was younger and say rock and roll, but we all know now. I never thought I'd see the day where rock would be not in the forefront because in the 60s, 70s and 80s and even the 90s, rock was pretty dominant. And I do love all music and I think all music should get a chance to shine, but it touches people in a way that is just beyond, uh, you know, it gets in there and uh, makes you feel things. It makes you, uh, I don't know. It just takes you on a little sort of magic carpet ride for a while. And the same thing that a really good movie can do, you know, and uh, I just like, Sorry, go ahead. No, as I said, just like music, uh, movies did that for me. And I had the good fortune to see how films I've worked on, and especially Kevin's films. You know, like I got to go to London a few years back, all thanks to Clerks. And I couldn't believe that not only was I going to London, but I was going to a convention for a personal appearance with my castmates in London. And I got to see London and go to Abbey Road, and uh, all thanks to this crazy little black and white movie. And it's just a dream come true, you know? I like to credit, because I'm a, I'm a, I haven't made anything in a while, but I got some things in the works, but um, as a filmmaker myself, and, a, and a, someone who is always banging away at writing screenplays, but I like to credit, and I was not a good one at all, but... I like to credit songwriting to kind of helping me transition to being able to write more throughout my twenties and now into my thirties. Cause I mean, I I'm, I'm not a musician. I picked up a guitar for a couple years. I think from like when I was 17 to about 19, um, I, I was playing a little bit and I was writing songs here and there and some were probably okay. Some of them were probably not very good at all, but I think what that also did was it helped me be able to convey emotion on the page and the written word. So I've always kind of said to my writer friends, like, even if you're not really a songwriter, just try and write a song, just, just try, just give it a shot. Like, even if you're tone deaf or anything, just try to rhyme something and get some sort of rhythm. Um, that's, uh, that's really a, an awesome thing. And it's, I have a very close friend who's also a filmmaker Tom Zanka. I've appeared in a number of his films. All of them are available somewhere online over the years. Tom loves music. Tom listens to music as he writes his screenplays. And uh, he's very inspired by songwriting first. And he's not a musician either, but he loves music and he's learning a little bit now. But I get it. And I also think a lot of the actors, a lot of the actors that I've really were inspired by throughout my whole life, Many of them were also musicians. Uh, Jeff Goldblum is a phenomenal musician. Mm-hmm. Um, so many of them. Of course, we know Johnny Depp and, uh, oh gosh, uh, Jeff Bridges. And there's just so many that, yeah. uh, you know, Billy Bob Crazy Thornton. Heart, Jeff Bridges. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, one. That was a good Billy one. Bob Thornton. There's just yeah. so many. And I, I think that I always saw, you know, the actor's role in a film kind of like, you know, the screenplay is one big song and everybody, you know, there's there's a there's a there's a melodic way you can deliver the lines and your dialogue. You know, uh, I think one of the biggest um, hurdles for independent filmmakers 
is they put a little too much emphasis on the visual and not enough emphasis on audio, like the quality of the audio. I've the been sound, burned. <laughs> yeah, the sound <laughs> of the dialogue. You know, I, the, the, unfortunately, you could have the greatest looking picture. You could have actors really killing it. But if you have really weak sort of, you know, Sunday afternoon barbecue audio, it really throws you out of the moment, you know? So it's sound and vision, man. I, I've always said when I talk to like people in film school, like I, you know, mainly my peers, we kind of get it by now with audio and visuals. Um, but like, you know, guys younger than me, you know, who I've literally been on a set where a guy, one, the director once said, I'm not really worried about audio right now. And I was like, ah, this ain't going to go well. <laughs> um, but I remember someone told me, and I like to pass it on to people where it's like, if you don't think, or if, if you don't, if you don't notice audio, really watch a movie with your eyes closed. Therefore you're not watching it. You're listening to it. And therefore you can kind of pick apart good audio and bad audio. And one of the directors out there that I think, I mean, I'm sure other directors are like this too, but one director that I think really focuses on um, sound design really well, is Christopher Nolan. Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, last time I was in Los Angeles, I went and saw, I think it was Interstellar, which came out close to, geez, like 10 years ago now um, at, the, at the Chinese theater. And the guy working there was told me that like Christopher Nolan was there a week before the premiere working with the sound people in the theater to make sure all the acoustics were good and make sure everything popped perfectly on screen with the audio. And yeah, it's just, it's just a, te- I guess where I'm going with all that, like, yeah, it's a testament of how good you need good audio in a movie, whether it's a multi-million dollar film or something that you're making with your buddies. I believe people will be more forgiving of crude video yeah. if it has good audio. I mean, let's, let's look at Clerks. Uh, Clerks, one of its endearing qualities, thankfully, over time, is just how rough and, you know, sort of crude and it's punk rock. You know, it's just, uh, it's not bright and shiny with all the edges uh, sanded off. But because his dialogue is so wonderful kevin writes hilarious dialogue and crazy characters and the audio might not have been stellar but it was made sure it was quality mm-hmm. uh it's important and then he got i'll never forget when i was on the phone with him when it did a re- when it when it went really well at sundance and he's like man we're getting a ton of cds from sony and we're going to you know be able to put in a real soundtrack like you know he was picking and that soundtrack is killer. That soundtrack is to me, I was God as a musician. I was so happy that the soundtrack was so amazing. Some of my favorite bands are on that soundtrack of that time of that era. And uh, also they screened the movie at the 94 Woodstock. Really? I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. Which was another amazing, wonderful gift. He called me up. He's like, man, you know, we're, we're, we're going to screen at Woodstock, you know, and I'm like, wow, as a, as a musician, I didn't get there as a musician, but I got to Woodstock <laughs> somehow, you know, which is so cool, you know. How did it, like, I'm, I'm, I'm dating myself here. I was probably 
94, like six years old, but like, how does this, how does this exactly screen at Woodstock? Like, is there like a section somewhere where it's, they pop I up th- a screen? I think it was like an after hours thing. Oh, okay, I think okay. Music was done for the day, you know, whatever the last band, I don't know which night it was. It was definitely, uh, I would love to have been there, but I wasn't, but, um, it was uh, when one night when the music was done for the night, uh, and I'm sure that was all Miramax, which was very, you know, Miramax was very powerful back then. Uh, they wanted to, you know, in the, keeping in the spirit of what was the 94 Woodstock was awesome. Some great bands. I think it was when we first saw Green Day really explode. Yeah, and it was an exciting time, you know, but um, At least it wasn't the 99 Woodstock. Oh, I just saw a documentary on that. That was just oh god. HBO did uh yeah. It was like last year. I that was like one of the scariest movies I saw last year because I I was old enough for that to know that that happened and um but I didn't know like full on details and yeah, awful. That really, was it, it not was it's in love. You know, and I really I was a I, at the time when the when the significant other Limp Bizkit record came out. I really dug that record. I thought that was really, and I still yeah. like the record and I don't dislike them, but so, history sort of tells that they were really one of the main instigators of the violence at that show. Mm-hmm. And um, that just is not what, you know, aggressive music. I get that, yeah. but you get yeah. it out in the music. Maybe you get in the mosh pit, but man, you know, there were just like, really brutal rapes and beatings at that yeah. and then destruction, destruction. You know, I was just like, Oh gosh, not what a music festival should ever be about. I think it was um, like what the chili peppers were like the last band to play. I think on the last night, but they were just burning everything down out in the fields and whatnot or something. And, and I just, you I think love, about- I- you think of I a band like the, sorry, go ahead. Okay. No, I love the Peppers and they were at the 94. Yeah, no, the, I think what I was getting at bulbs. is like Red Hot Chili Peppers, a band that I don't think could incite something like that out of an audience. Like it was just so kind of strange to me. But like, you know, I got nothing against Limp Biscuit either. But like, yeah, like a lot of those late 90s bands that were aggressive and angry and whatnot, you could kind of see people wanting to react to something like that in that way. And I guess. Well, so. you know, I, I mean, there's literally a song, wasn't it? Like, break shit. Let's go. Oh, break, break stuff or break shit is the unedited right, version. Whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, that if you use the music to get that out and maybe you punch a punching bag or you break something of your own that you don't give a shit about, you smash a beer bottle where nobody gets hurt. Some of that is can be therapeutic. But what happened at that Woodstock is just heartbreaking, yeah. man, you know, heartbreaking. Um, well, let's, we just kind of touched on it a little bit. I think it's time we just, let's jump into clerks here. Um, uh, obviously landmark film, um, of nineties indie film. I I mean, I'll be completely blunt by saying it was one of the films I saw and I saw it later on after the fact, uh, that really kind of made me start writing screenplays and start thinking, oh, I can maybe do something like this for, I mean, you guys probably had more money than I did on my first feature film, but, um, um, but I, I, I've said on this show before, I, I made a 
feature film. I got the movie poster right here, hanging up here. It, it's um, it's pretty much Clerks at a gas station. I'll just say that. Okay, and, that's very cool. And I, I just, I always kind of reference that, and like, I, maybe even when I was writing it, I wasn't really thinking about Clerks, but I was a big, you know, Kevin Smith fan, and I think it just kind of came out and. So it's nice to talk to someone who was involved with the film and who's in the film and like, just tell me what was the journey for you to get your part? Well, like I said earlier, I was transitioning from music to uh, back to acting because I had done a a good amount of acting in my early 20s in college. Not a good amount, but I was always into it. And I was, by the time I got to college, I was, you know, in theater and did the Tennessee Williams plays and things of that nature. And then I was on a local access cable TV network for a couple of years with a little sort of improv comedy group. Uh, But then I, you know, I had gone full steam in the music. And then I told you what happened with that. And then I was transitioning back into film films and films was really where it was at for me. Um, I wanted to be part of filmmaking more, way more so than theater. I respect theater. It takes a tremendous amount of yeah. energy and talent to do that as well. But film was where it was at for me. And um, luckily, the indie scene was starting to kind of bubble and there was things happening. And like I said, you went to the trade papers uh, and you got the audition notices. And luckily, Kevin put his notice in a classifieds in one of the papers that were in my area. And I saw the ad, you know, uh, indie filmmaker examines the day in the life of a convenience store clerk, something along those lines. And I was like, wow, even then it wasn't common to have a film shooting in New Jersey. There was a lot in New York, Pennsylvania, some in Connecticut. Occasionally you'd be getting things in New Jersey. Hoboken was starting to become a happening place, but it wasn't. Like it is now. Now you throw a rock and every, you know, somebody's making a movie on their phone, but there wasn't like that. So I was like, I got to get to this audition. And it was like an hour and a half away. You know, they weren't close. Uh, those guys are Southern Jersey or Central Jersey, you know, down the shore. I'm way up by New York City, but I definitely had to go. And um, I was very fortunate to uh, do well enough at the audition for them to call me back. At the audition, you didn't read from the script. You did a prepared monologue, which is not uncommon. And if they like what you did, then you came back and you read from the script. So like all auditions, when I think I did well, I don't hear back. When I think I was terrible, I hear back. So I didn't think I did all that well. But all of a sudden, you know, about a week later, phone rang and it was Kevin's people. And can you come down and read from the script this time? And absolutely. And uh you know, I almost the first audition I almost didn't make because I got there really early. And uh, it's a short it was a short town, Atlantic Highlands. And, it's, you know, the, the beach was closed, but I, I walked out on a jetty to kind of get some energy going. And I was doing my monologue out loud and I guess gesturing wildly. And from the shore, people thought there was like a lunatic on the jetty and they called the security like you know we don't know if this guy is drunk and out on the jetty or because back then there were no earbuds or i'm just picturing that monologue and you alone just out like there doing yeah you know well the monologue was actually it wasn't from clerks the monologue was from diner 
<laughs> yeah, uh, the da- Daniel Stern's character from Diner. But, you know, it was spirited and, you know, I was doing my thing and I didn't think it would be a big deal. But when they called me in, I was like, no, I, I'm auditioning right off the block. Please, if if you got to do anything, can you let me audition first? I'm from an hour and a half away. And they're like, all right, just stay off the jetty. But, um, yeah, it was a really exciting ride. And to this very day, a blessing. Uh, the cinematic gods really looked down on Kevin and blessed him. And in a sense, all of us that were connected with that first one, it was a real dream come true kind of scenario. You know, you, nothing to call it but that. Yeah, no, like it's, there really is once in a, I don't know, maybe once a decade or so. I mean, I know he would, Kevin Smith was kind of um, one of maybe a handful of directors that got to really kind of personify that era. Um you had your Kevin Smiths, you had your Quentin Tarantino's came out in the night, you know, he showed up in the nineties, Robert Rodriguez, a few other ones that aren't coming to my head right now, but um, no, it, it, it link ladder. Yeah. Link. Yeah. Oh, don't, I mean, would we, I, Kevin Smith is kind of, you know, right. loves, loves link, loves slacker. Basically slacker was a big inspiration on a uh, Clerks. So, and yes. I, yeah, slacker is, Oh my God. I got to give that one a rewatch too. Cause I, I just did a dazed and confused rewatch. So you, you own it. You're the, you're the Chewy's gum guy. So when this thing got to film festivals, uh, did, did you get to go? Like, did you kind of go on tour with the thing? No, I didn't. Um, Damn. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, that's okay. I, I mean, I'll, I know Brian O'Halloran and Marilyn Gigliotti, you know, uh, Jeff Anderson, the leads were all at Sundance, but you know, I, in all reality, I was a supporting player and I, you know, I didn't have the bread to get myself out there and be there, which I would have loved to have been there. But I, you know, it, I also, uh, the premiere, the New York premiere I missed because I ended up in rehab. So uh, I, you know, things were rough for me in those years, but still I was blessed with a lot of good things. Um, but no, long story short, uh, I, I wasn't at any of the original screenings, but when it finally opened up at the Angelica in New York and it played the Angelica for months, months, it was weekends. And, you know, the NYU film students used to make a thing of going every weekend, you know, but I got to got to go with my mom, which was really special. And, you know, we're wait, there we are waiting in line at the Angelica Film Center in New York City. And everybody is talking amongst themselves about the movie and about, you know, oh, I heard he made it for $27,000 and he actually worked in the store during the day. And my mom and I are just kind of looking at each other because, uh, you know, we were, I was a part of it. She understood, she knew, you know, I, I had clean shaven. I wasn't uh, the way I looked in the film. I had the beard in the film. And of course the film was so new that nobody would have put two and two together anyway. But it was so exciting to be at the Angelica to see the film, to see everybody be so excited for it. And to be in it was just for an actor. It's just like, oh, man, it's the greatest thing ever. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you you go out on conventions and whatnot and do the oh, yeah. um, do the routine and everything and meet up with your old cast members. And like I, I talked to a lot of uh 
directors and people in front of the camera who are like in the horror genre and you know they all they all go to the horror conventions and whatnot and i've been out of that world for a while even before covid so i i need to get back to a convention some point soon but um you know what's that like just kind of interacting with people and you know them kind of knowing you for that you know those standout couple scenes which is really i, I didn't get to say this i should have said this like five ten minutes ago but you know your part in the film, like I feel sets the tone for the movie. Like, you know, what kind of humor you're going to get out of this film. You know how these characters are going to hit their lines and hit their marks. Like, I think your, your performance really sets the tone for the film. Well, thank you. And he, I mean, there's a method to Kevin's madness. That role was written to do just that. It was to give you an idea of how crazy the ride you're on is going to be. And uh, it was visual and bombastic and probably some of the most action in the movie, aside from the hockey game and uh, going to the funeral home. It's basically what they call talking heads, you know, people just doing a lot of talking. So it it was it was written to do the to do that. And for me, I always felt and I believe that. For an actor, if you didn't get one of the main roles, the Trulies guy was one of the best roles to get aside from one of the lead roles and maybe Rick Darris and a couple others. But that was really written to be a standout thing. So I was really blessed. You know, my literally my dream at that point was to get work and notice as a character actor in indie films. You know, and I thought I'd work my way up to bigger roles, but um, boom, I, I, I got a real dream come true when that film began to really take off. Because for actors, once you're no longer anonymous and film people and other directors could put you uh, in a place where, OK, they know they know you've got some chops. You know, you're no longer in that cattle call with I'd walk in the room and there'd be like 40 other guys look just like me, you know. So it sets you apart a little bit. So it's, again, a blessing on so many levels. Yeah, man. Um, Well, so leading up to you and me having this conversation, I, I was doing some little research and whatever you can or can't say, I was looking at your IMDb and are you involved in Clerks 3? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm in. Um, everybody, um, well, with the exception of Lisa Spoonhour, who sadly uh, yeah. we lost a few years ago. She passed away, which is heartbreaking. Yeah, I remember hearing that. She's a sweetheart of a person. It's horrible. Um, a lot of the core cast from the original are in and make some really fun cameos. Uh, I, I could share what he has shared, which is out there. Uh, I'm not giving away any spoilers when I say what happens is uh, the boys have a midlife crisis <laughs> and they decide they're going to Randall decides I'm always talking about movies. I'm going to make my own movie. Yeah. So he makes clerks, which is so meta and weird. It's crazy. But I got to play the actor that played it's so weird it's like a loop it's meta i'm not even sure what the hell's going on but i'm playing the actor that played the role which is me so it was bizarre and fun and he wrote something 
really fun that most actors want to be able to do, which I won't say more about, uh, kind of poking fun at the actor thing, mm-hmm. you know, actors, you know, who might take themselves a little too seriously. So it's, it's a really fun scene. Yes, we got to reprise our roles. Marilyn's back. Just about everybody's back. Uh, uh, Rick Darris is back, you know. So yeah. given that premise, he was able to bring everybody back. It, just wonderful. So, yeah, you know, we're, we're all excited. The convention circuit did quiet down because of COVID for quite a while. But I enjoy that very much. I mean, why wouldn't you? Uh, it's beautiful to meet the people who feel a lot like you do is that film really inspired them. And, you know, when you remove the ego part of being an actor or a musician, why did we get into this? We got into this because we wanted to move people the way we were moved by music and movies. And when you hear that from people all over the country and overseas, I never dreamed I'd be in a big convention in London with throngs of people who were moved by that film. Just beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, It's a very weird thing too, because I grew up at a time where the convention thing really was not happening until mid to late eighties into the Mm nineties. It was really just comic books and it became movies and actors late eighties, not even late eighties. It was really until late nineties, it started to become a thing into the 2000s and as a, as a mix of eBay and people monetizing autographed souvenirs, it became a thing, you know? Uh, so rather than spend an arm and a leg on a signed picture by somebody, you could spend a lot less money and get to meet them in person and get your signed picture. And it was a lot more, you know, I mean, there are some people who, exploit that and charge a ridiculous amount but yeah you know mine was never that way uh it never would be obviously um i have a few i met where i was like ah (laughs) a lot of that some of them it's like a lot of bread you know and i won't say their names on on mics but (laughs) yeah no i you know listen i we're also at a time now where being able to monetize your acting career is almost harder than it's ever been because music is the same way. I mean, musicians can't make the money on records anymore the way they did Mm -hmm. streams, streams pay fractions of a penny for a stream, you know? So $25 for a signed book or a signed DVD signed picture, take the photo op. That's not so bad. I mean, that's where that's my uh, range uh there are some people who you know bigger stars are asking a lot of money and it's it's a, it's a hard thing to kind of juggle i, I don't you know, when there's people who are charging hundreds of dollars i i don't see how that you know that just mm-hmm. seems like smack in the face to the fans yeah you know that's a lot of bread yeah. get, you know, five minutes of somebody's time yeah, last last time that happened to me, it was thirty seconds of somebody of of time, and actually, my mom. I don't really want to go into it. But. Yeah, yeah, it 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 could be a rough thing, you know. I I'm actually surprised by some of the people who I've heard have done that. 
Yeah. You know, at that point, when you're in that, when you're in that income bracket, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, my, my thought is the convention can pay them whatever. And a lot of conventions do this to pay a appearance fee. And then the people who buy a ticket in get that with the ticket in. Mm-hmm. You're not paying yeah. that person separately. So you're paying to get into the convention. You're paying an astronomical amount of money to meet some Marvel hero. Yeah. All right. Well, this is the part of the show. Bring things in for a landing here where I like, I mean, obviously we know you're going to be in Clerks 3, which is pretty freaking cool that Kevin got the band pretty much all back together. Um, but anything else, obviously I understand how non-disclosure agreements can work, but anything else you can or can't tell me of what you might have coming down the pipeline as well. Yeah, there's, there's a bunch of things. Uh, some things are, are, are going to be soon. Some are just, uh, still in talking stages, but, uh, there's a film called, um, full moon fever, which is a film by David Madison, who's a filmmaker and friend of mine. He's become a dear friend over the years. I've, I've worked on some of his other films. I'm, I'm in the cast of Full Moon Fever and I'll be probably doing a good amount of the music or some of the music. Uh, my schedule has gotten crazy and he's got some deadlines I know he's got to meet, but that'll be coming out this fall, Full Moon Fever, David Lee Madison's film. Uh, I was in a film during COVID that shot during COVID uh, that is, I don't know, it came out during COVID for sure, uh, called Darkness Waits, uh, which is Libmatic uh, Films, Libby McDermott and Matt Stolly, two indie filmmakers who I love. And it was a it was a role that I really enjoyed. I got to play the mayor, real cheesy guy of uh, the mayor of a town that's got these outlandish killings and almost like it's Jaws on land, like he doesn't want to treat this murderous guy out in the woods is anything. He doesn't want to create hysteria, but yet um, uh, there's hysteria. So Darkness Waits, which has also got Jim Crutt from uh, Dawn of the Dead and uh, David Madison as well. And Conrad Brooks, who was from uh, all of the insane Ed Wood movies. He's, that's his last movie ever. Sadly, Conrad was very sick when he shot with us. Um and I'm always working on music and I'm always hoping to, I'm actually looking to get a little deeper into music and to get out there and play music live again, since that's the number one main thing that musicians need to do now because records are not what they used to be. So uh, yeah, that, that's, that's a good little glimpse into the next handful of months. And of course, Clerks 3 is in September, which is right around the corner and, wow, that's just so exciting, you know, to be a part of it. Uh, there's a bunch of different posters. He, he put a lot of us on the tour poster, which is sort of an unofficial movie poster, mm-hmm. you know, and on the Lionsgate official movie poster, right behind the boys, there's a big Chulies banner. So it was like, <laughs> wow. You know, it's like, you talk yes. about the next thing. That's almost better than being, my face being on the poster, you see Chuli's right behind the guy. It's like you know? a tease. Now, you know, he's going to be there. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. He, he made a big deal out of the gum over the years, which <laughs> and he's always posting. And, you know, he said at a, at a Q and a, 
Julie's gum is the gum on the heel of the shoe of my career. <laughs> that was the coolest thing I ever heard, you know? Yeah, that, that's, that's really cool. Um, yeah, so like, I know you said at the top of the show, you, you, you're, you're a little behind sometimes on social media, but um, if we wanted to maybe track you down, learn about your music, make, you know, keep up with your acting career, like where can anybody find you? Pretty much at all the social media, the main three, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's just my name, Scott Schiaffo, Facebook, Scott Schiaffo, Instagram, Scott Schiaffo, Twitter. Uh, I'll tell you, they put you through the ringer to get that official blue check, which I can't imagine who would pretend to be the Julie's gum guy. You don't have it yet, or do you? No, I've been killing myself to get a blue check on some of the sites, and I've actually sort of kind of abandoned it for a while because everybody Zuckerberg, the people who do follow me, uh, they know that it's the real me behind all of my social media. But um, so don't be dismayed. If you don't see the blue check, you could tell right away. Like I said, it would be pretty sad for somebody to pretend to be the Julie's gum guy. But um, yeah, I'm very, I'm actually a lot more active on Facebook than any of the others only because I'm old and it's the one I've been on the most. And I do enjoy Instagram, but um, as I'm aging, I love technology, but the older I get, the less friendly technology does seem to be. So uh, sometimes I get a little frustrated with things. Uh, Twitter Twitter became too insane during the Trump era, to be honest with you. I, I had to get away from it. Um, it just was so, it was so highly politically charged and so much so much hate and anger going on on Twitter. I was like, eh. you know, I still try to stay on Twitter and I will po- excuse me, I will post there from time to time, but I'm mostly, excuse me, on Facebook and Instagram at my name and you stay in touch with me, brother, and we'll swap links and you tag yeah. me and uh, I will definitely promote when you drop the podcast. I uh, do enjoy doing these. To me, they're a wonderful uh, thing of technology and of indie, it's technology meets indie. And now, you know, uh, technology makes it easy for people with enthusiasm for films and music can can do their thing. Like, you know, it's wonderful. You could do your thing. You can make indie films. You could have this podcast. You could uh, oh, man, the Chulies guy liked my post. I'm going to reach out to him and, hey, shit, he's going to come on. That's great. You know, it's wonderful for me to do it. I have the flexibility. I'm very fortunate, I think to be able to share it, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that is a perfect place to leave it. Uh, Scott, thank you for a good show. You're welcome, brother. It was my pleasure to be on here. Stay in touch. I will definitely link you the audible. Mm. Uh, I have comps for the audible and just reach out to me anytime. Let me know what's up. And uh, sometimes I miss a few days on social media, but I do do keep up with it as best I can. but again, it's my pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me. And there you have it. And we will see you all next week on The Basement. Take care.